Well, good morning. It is good to have you here on this Palm Sunday uh, morning here in the room. And those of you joining us online, so glad that you're with us uh, today. This is the beginning of what is referred to in the church as Holy Week or Passion Week, starting with Palm Sunday today, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and all the events that happened that week. And then there was this tragic turn of events on Thursday night where the the arrest, the betrayal, the arrest, the, the uh, conviction, the trials of Jesus that culminated with the crucifixion and the dark, dark Saturday, but then there was this really cool twist to the plot on Resurrection Sunday, and that is uh, Holy Week or, or Passion Week, and, uh, and it starts today. What's really quite remarkable is the disproportionate amount of space, time, and attention that the gospel writers give to this one-week period. Um, as you know, uh, save Matthew and Luke, who gave a couple of chapters to the birth narrative, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... Their whole story is a recounting, in essence, of the three years of Jesus' adult public ministry. Roughly, give or take, 156 weeks. But it's as they're, they're going through telling this story from the time he was baptized and started his ministry to the, you know, after the resurrection, it flows like a, like a swift river as it covers these three years. And yet when it comes to this final week of Jesus, things slow down disproportionately. I mean, two-thirds of the Gospels talk about basically 155 weeks, and one-third of the Gospels focus on this one week. It's like this, this fast, swift-flowing river suddenly slows down to having the viscosity of honey, and instead of flowing, it just slowly creeps forward as they tell this story and all of the events that happen in this one-week period. In fact, a man named... Um, uh, Andy Nacelli, he said the gospel narratives really are a passion narrative with extended introductions. And as we start into this Holy Week today, uh, being Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, we're going to look specifically at the events of Palm Sunday and maybe just a little beyond that. And uh, for some of you who gr grew up in church, you're like, right now you're probably thinking, oh yeah, I know where this sermon's going. I've sat through these. I did the palm branches when I was a kid. I said, Hosanna, all that stuff. Great. I am so glad you're here. Don't tune out yet. Because this will be a good reminder. And I am going to throw in a few rabbit trails. I know, I know. Hard to believe. That maybe you'll say, well, I didn't ever see that one before. And it's amazing, as I was preparing for this, this message, I had a, a, a parallel Bible where it has Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just right side by side, so you could read how each of them give their depiction of Palm Sunday. And while the, the core of the story is exactly the same, it's interesting how each of them saw different details, added little pieces, uh, just a different angle. Everyone had, And so there's kind of, as you read all four of them, you get this composite, more full view of what happened that day. And so today, instead of turning to a spot in your Bible, I'm going to give you kind of a composite. We're going to look at each of the Gospels, not just chronologically, but I'm going to be dipping into each of them so we get a fuller view of this. And I'll say this, um, when it was brought to me, I don't know, a couple months ago, of, why don't we do a traditional Palm Sunday uh, sermon and, and weekend? I was great. So I, I was thinking, Fantastic. And I thought, I wonder when the last time was that I preached on Palm Sunday. So I went back in my files. Ten years ago, 2012, was the last time on Palm Sunday I preached about Palm Sunday. I have ten years of material <laughs> saved up. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, ask someone who was here last night or just stick around for the next hour and a half. I hope you have nowhere to go. 
Uh, but we're going to look at, at Palm Sunday and uh, one jump into it. What's interesting to me is when you look at the events of Palm Sunday, actually all of the Holy Week, is when you begin to realize none of it is random. None of it is by accident. None of it is by chance. None of it just happens. Our sovereign God has orchestrated all things, even to the smallest little detail. You see, before Palm Sunday happened, if you back up 550 years in the life of Israel, they've been in Babylon, they've been exiled, they were going to be there for 70 years, God told them, you know, make some homes and find, you know, wives and have children and all that, you're going to be here for a while. But after the 70 years, I will bring you back. And after the ex exile, they're coming back to Jerusalem, they're rebuilding the walls, they're rebuilding the temple, and God sends these prophets, one of which is the prophet Zechariah. And in Zechariah, as he's telling these people, returning from this 70-year time out that they've been in, he says, learn the lessons of your forefathers. Don't make the same mistakes. And then in chapters 9 through 11 of Zechariah, this prophecy of the Old Testament, he begins telling about the future, and he begins telling about this Messiah that would come. And in Zechariah chapter 9, this is 550 years before the event, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, he writes these things, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous, having salvation, gentle, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Interesting small little details that wouldn't happen for 550 years. Now, let me give you a little bit of context for this, because Palm Sunday wasn't just a random Sunday of like, yeah, this seems like a good Sunday to have Palm Sunday. There's a lot going on. It's the week of Passover. Those of you who are familiar with Passover, Passover was an annual festival that the Jews celebrated because of an event that had happened 1,500 years before that. While they had been in bondage, enslaved in Egypt, or they had been oppressed by the Egyptians, God delivers them, sends a deliverer named Moses, and gives them freedom, crushes their enemies. And there's this one event where they put blood over the doorpost. And so when the death angel comes, it passes over. And then they're instructed very clearly, remember these things, commemorate this, go back to this every year and remember what God has done, his faithfulness of delivering you from oppression and bondage and slavery and giving you freedom and liberating you. And so they had for 1,500 years. Not only that, but Passover, the Jewish people had multiple festivals. Three of them were referred to as pilgrimage festivals, which meant, according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, there were three festivals every year that, if humanly possible, you should go to the place of the temple, of the tabernacle, where the Ark of the Covenant was, the dwelling place of God. You should go there for those festivals. And for many, many years, that was in Shiloh. Now it was in Jerusalem. And so the Jewish people knew that if they were... Anyway, humanly possible, at, like, at least three times a year, they had to go to Jerusalem. For, had, they got to go to Jerusalem. They looked forward, they anticipated going to Jerusalem for these festivals. One was Passover. That was always in March or April. There was also Pentecost, which was always in late May or early June. And then there was the, the, the Sukkot, the, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles, which was in September and three times a year. This was Passover, March or April. And during Passover, because it was a pilgrimage festival, people would come, if humanly possible, they would come to Jerusalem. And so there was the, the, the influx of, of outsiders coming into the community, the numbers of people, the, the energy, the, 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 the commerce that takes place. Um, you know, sometimes I make comments about Linden. <laughs> and they're always from a heart of affection. So if you've ever been in Linden during Fair Week... 
you understand that Linden, this godly little town, is just all of a sudden inundated with hundreds and thousands of people. Or if you've been to Darrington for the Bluegrass Festival, I suppose, or Skagit for the... If you've ever been to Sturgis, here's this little town, and then suddenly... So by conservative estimates, conservative estimates believe that at this time, Jerusalem and the surrounding area was about 50,000 people. But during Passover, that would swell to about 250,000 people for the week. That's conservative estimates. Some that are a little more liberal on their estimations would say that it would swell to even a million. I think that's a bit aggressive. But regardless, there are hundreds of thousands of people coming into this town, and it happens all the time. With that going on, especially at Passover, when they're remembering being delivered from their oppressors, Rome gets a little uneasy at these moments because Israel, Jerusalem, Judea is under the Roman Empire. And as they gather together, large groups, I mean, officials get concerned when there's large groups anyway, because there can be some things that happen. If there was ever going to be an uprising, if there was ever going to be some tension, if there was ever going to be a revolt, it would be when there are hundreds of thousands of Jewish people gathered. There's strength in numbers, especially when they're remembering God delivered us from an oppressor and we're oppressed now. So with that, with Passover was a great celebration for the Jewish people, the Romans weren't quite as excited about this. The Roman governor at the time was Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the governor over Judea. This was not an enviable um, role to have on many fronts. From the, the Roman mindset, Judea was the armpit of the Roman Empire. On the one hand, just distance-wise, it was farther by land or by sea. It was farther from Rome than anywhere else in the Roman Empire. In addition to that, it's this backwater little town with these people who are not even Roman citizens. There's no great city. It's not like there's Rome or Athens or Corinth or even Ephesus or Alexandria. There's Jerusalem. And these Jewish people, Pontius Pilate is sent there to babysit them just to keep order. And they're not Roman citizens. They're not wild about the Roman Empire. They hate the Roman taxation. They hate the Romans. And to just be there, to watch over them, was not an enviable spot if you're a leader in the Roman Empire. And Pontius Pilate was there. The only redeeming factor of this whole uh, you know, assignment of being in Judea was where you got to stay. Caesarea Maritima is a city that Herod built right on the Mediterranean Sea, and it is beautiful. And there, there was a theater, and there was a hippodrome, and there was a deep port, and the, the cool breezes coming off the Mediterranean, the azure blue waters of the sea. That was a beautiful place, and that was the administrative and the military headquarters for the, the Roman outpost. That's where Pontius Pilate stayed. He tried to stay away from Jerusalem. He did not like to go to Jerusalem, but there were at least three times a year when it necessitated him visiting there just to keep order. This was one of those times. So as he leaves Caesarea Maritima, as he leaves the coast, and he goes inland to Jerusalem, he's probably thinking, if I have to go, I'm going to go in style. And besides, I don't want to be overrun by these Jewish people. So he probably has a garrison of 800 to 1,000 or more soldiers that are going with him. And he goes on a chariot or a, a, a fine steed. And there's all this pomp and circumstance because he is the display of all the political and military power, all the world's wealth that the Jewish people don't have. And he comes into Jerusalem with all of this pomp and circumstance, with all this regalia on this incredible, beautiful horse. So you see the context. It's Passover week. There's hundreds of thousands of people come to Jerusalem from all over. From the west comes Pilate 
and all of his entourage on this beautiful horse and chariots and all that coming into Jerusalem from the west. Meanwhile, on the east side of Jerusalem, Jesus and his band of merry men have been down in Jericho, tiny little town, oldest uh, continually inhabited city on, on the planet, lowest city inhabited on the planet, 850 feet below sea level. There he's just healed the poorest man in the town, Bartimaeus, and he's just welcomed the richest man in town, Zacchaeus, into the kingdom of God. And as they go from the lowest place, 850 feet, up to Jerusalem, which is 2,500 feet above sea level, they go up to Jerusalem. As they go, they sing the Psalms of Ascent. This is the Psalms that they would sing on their way up to Jerusalem. Just before they get to Jerusalem, on the east side of the Mount of Olives, is a little town called Bethany. This is where Jesus' really good friends live, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And this is where he no doubt stays. And there he is. So as he's staying there, there's all of this festivities that goes on. Now, shall we get to the Bible? John chapter 12 says this. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. There's hundreds of thousands of people that have come, and there's hearing this rumor, Jesus is going to be here. For three years, Jesus has been teaching. Jesus has been healing. Jesus has been doing miracles. Jesus has been proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus has been squaring off toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Pharisees. He has this reputation. Some of them were there when he fed the 5,000. They had been fed. Some of them had been healed. Some of their friends had been healed. Some of them had heard about this teaching. Some of them were there when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. They heard about Jesus. They knew about Jesus. Jesus is coming as well. And they want to see this man. And, 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 not just the three years of history, Verse 17, it says, Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread that word, the word, many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. They had heard about this Lazarus. He was dead for four days. This wasn't just a rumor. People were there. They had seen it. When he said Lazarus, they were there. And this word begins to spread. And so while all these people are coming to Jerusalem and Pilate's coming in and they hear Jesus coming, they're all going out to meet this Jesus, to see this Jesus. Maybe he'll heal them. Maybe he'll do a miracle. Maybe he'll say something. And as he's going into Jerusalem from Bethany on the east side of the Mount of Olives, there's another little town. Bethany's only about two miles from Jerusalem. It's not a very far walk. There's another tiny little village called Bethphage. And Jesus sends two of his di disciples up to this little village called Bethage. This is what um, Matthew says in his gospel, 21. Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey uh, tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. We just read this. Say to the daughters of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. This had been prophesied 550 years earlier. And now the time was right. Even the birth of this little colt, this little foal, this little donkey, all of it happens. And now Jesus gets on this and the king rides in to the kingdom of Jerusalem on a donkey. The king on a donkey. Tim Keller said that made this phrase, said this phrase, and at first it really struck me 
odd. He, he said, Jesus was humble, but not modest. He was humble, but not modest. He was humble. I mean, in Matthew chapter 11, he said, learn, take my yoke from me and, and learn from me, for I'm, I'm humble and gentle of spirit, gentle of heart. And he showed this humility as he would so tenderly care for the poor, for, for the widows, for the children, as he would, as he would include the outcasts and, and the sinners and the unclean and the lepers and the prostitutes, as he would wash his disciples' feet. He just, he just displays this humility over and over again. There was no one below him. He would, no one that he wouldn't just stoop down to serve and help. There was so much humility. And now he comes, the king of kings, the name above all names, the creator of the universe, comes in on a donkey. When I was growing up, my dad had a 1963 Volkswagen Bug. This was the second of our family cars. This is the car that all three of us kids learned to drive in. Had a stick. This was a 1963 Volkswagen Bug. There was nothing glamorous about this car. One horsepower. This car had a six-volt electrical system, which means if you were trying to jumpstart another car, you couldn't do it because it had a six-volt system. With a six-volt system, you could not have a radio in this car because there wasn't enough power. The lights were always on high beam, and people would say, turn on your lights. The windshield wipers did this. <laughs> the heating system came off the exhaust manifold, and so the car had to get really, really warm before any heat would come, and the defrost took about three weeks to come on. There was nothing glamorous about this car at all. And as I was thinking about Jesus coming in on a donkey, it would be like the greatest dignitary, the greatest you know, honored guest saying, get the 63 bug. <laughs> and here's Jesus humbly coming in on a donkey. I think Peter is probably going, listen, I don't care what Zechariah said. Jesus, you're not going in on a donkey. Are you kidding me? What about your image? This donkey, that's what hobbits ride in on. You're not going to ride in on a donkey. We're not going to have this. And Jesus rides in on a donkey. He's, he's humble, but he's not modest. I mean, he would say things like, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's not a modest statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. He dreamed of seeing my day. These are not modest statements. He's humble, but he's not modest. So John goes on, they took, uh, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel, humble but not modest. The king of Israel. You know, if you've read through the life of Jesus, you know that often if he does a, a miracle, he'll say, now listen, don't tell anybody. You know, I've healed you, but, but shh, don't tell anybody. It's always downplaying this. Go to the priest, but don't tell anybody else. You know, don't let anyone know this. Not now. Now he receives it. They're calling him the king, and he receives it. And they're saying, Hosanna. Now, those of us raised in church, we know Hosanna is a Palm Sunday word. On Palm Sunday is when we sing the Hosanna songs. It's when we say Hosanna. It's when the children come in, Hosanna, all that. Hosanna is like the Palm Sunday word, isn't it? 
I mean, I grew up saying, you know, clap your hands. All you people, did anyone sing that? Hosanna, Hosanna, shout unto God with a voice of triumph. Okay, my friend Mark Stevens and I, we sing, Hosanna, banana. We thought we were so clever. <laughs> Which, when literally translated, means save the bananas now. They're shouting Hosanna, which means save now. It was this proclamation. It was this prayer. It was this request. It was this shout, save now. Why are they saying that? They're celebrating Passover. They remember when God sent a deliverer. They remember when someone saved them historically from the oppressor from, from, and, and liberated them and given, had given them freedom. They're saying Hosanna. We're celebrating what God did through Moses. Jesus, maybe you could do this again. Deliver us from our oppressors. Liberate us. Give us freedom. Crush our enemies. And not only that, but there's another little piece of Jewish history that many of you are not familiar with. Maybe if you were raised in the Catholic Church and you studied the Apocrypha, you may be aware of this. But just 200 years earlier, not 1,500 years, 200 years earlier, Israel was under the rule of a Seleucid king. And there was a man named Simon Maccabeus who went forward and delivered them from being this vassal state under this king so that no longer did they have to pay tribute, no longer did they have to serve a different king, that they were given freedom, they were given liberation just 200 years earlier. And when Simon Maccabeus came back to Jerusalem, this is what is recorded that happened, found in 1 Maccabees. And he entered into it with praise and palm branches and with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments and with hymns and songs because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. That maybe they're not just saying, we remember what Moses did in more recent history. We remember what Maccabeus did. And we had palm branches then. And we were singing and shouting then. And these palm branches had become this, this symbol not only of triumph and victory, but of nationalism. It was like a flag, these palm branches. This represented, we want liberty, we want freedom, we want to be out from underneath the oppression of others. One little rabbit trail here, just for fun. In Revelation, I'm not even asking permission. In Revelation chapter 7, in Revelation chapter 7, John gets a vision into the future, into this great kingdom of God in, in the future. And he said, and there was a multitude so numerous that no one could count them. From every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. And they were all dressed in white robes, and they all held palm branches saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This Palm Sunday is not only looking back, it's looking forward to the coming of the king again. Okay, now I'm going to stop away from that one. So here he is. He's coming in, and they're looking back, and they're thinking about Moses, and they're thinking about Maccabeus, and they're thinking about liberate us, crush us from my enemies, set us free. And Jesus understands what they're saying, and he's going to do that, but they misunderstand exactly. Because Jesus will crush an enemy, and he will bring freedom. But that enemy is not Rome. That enemy is sin. Death, guilt, shame, judgment, punishment, the grave, that will all be crushed. 
He will bring freedom, but it won't be a political freedom. And Jesus said, whom the Son has set free will be free indeed. Let's keep going. Luke says this. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. There's only one other time in the Bible this happens. The second Kings with King Jehu. But I won't even go down that rabbit trail. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. I want to stop right there. He's been in Bethany on the east side of Mount of Olives. He comes over the top where the road, the same road that has been used for hundreds and hundreds of years. Same road. Comes over the top of the Mount of Olives where the where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. At that point, he comes across the, the top of the Mount of Olives, coming down, and there is an unobstructed view of all of Jerusalem. The elevation of the Mount of Olives at its peak is 250 feet above Jerusalem. And there's nothing but the Kidron Valley between him and Jerusalem. And it's not that far. He can look down and he can see all of Jerusalem, unobstructed, panoramic view the city of David, the upper, the upper Jerusalem where most Jewish people live, the lower Jerusalem, the Antonio Fortress where Herod had built that and, and named it after Mark Antony, and the crown jewel of all of Israel, all of Jerusalem, the temple, Herod's temple. He had flattened off the, the mountaintop and made a, made a big plateau, 36 acres, and there he builds this temple. It took 46 years to build the temple. It was, a, it was the, the most beautiful, breathtaking structure in the whole area. Not only in its size and its magnitude, but its beauty and it's adorned with gold and all of this. It's just the crown jewel. And not just as an architectural feature of Jerusalem, but even more so what it represented. That at the temple, where heaven and earth overlapped, the very dwelling place of God, which represents that he is their God and they are his people. And as he comes over the crest of the Mount of Olives, he can see that. Now hold that thought because we're going to come back to that picture as he looks out over Jerusalem. So he's coming down this road that leads from the top of the Mount of Olives. The whole crowd of disciples began, remember, they've all come out. There's not just the 12 here began to joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen, all the things that had been going on for three years, the things they had heard about, all these things. Blessed is he who comes, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, as I mentioned, when you look at the, three, uh, the four uh, gospel writers, they all have different things that are said, but all of them quote Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And when the people are saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, what you need to understand is when there are little sections of Scripture, like, for instance, when Jesus is on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a phrase in and of itself, but it embodies a greater truth. And when people would say a little piece of Scripture, they knew the context. They knew the Scriptures that went around it. For instance, if I were to say, the Lord is my shepherd and stop there, some of you know exactly where that goes from there. If I were to say, our Father who art in heaven, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about and where it goes from there. If I were to say this phrase, what does it profit a man? You know the rest of that. You don't even have to say the rest of you. You understand all of that. So when they give this little quote out of Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, it's not just a phrase. It's the whole psalm. And that psalm, and we don't have time to go into all this, but it's where it says that the, that the stone that the builders rejected became the capstone. 
that this is the day that the Lord has made. And then it would go on and say, oh, Lord, save us. Hosanna. Oh, Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you, the Lord God. And he has made his light shine upon us with bows in hand. Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. They were a part of the fulfillment of Psalm 118. Now everyone's shouting and parading and singing and palm branching and throwing cloaks down. But not everybody is as excited as these followers of Jesus. And you would think it's the Romans who are a little upset, maybe concerned this could become an uprising. But it's really not the Romans that are upset. It's the Jewish religious leaders. Luke says this, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus, tell them to stop. Do you not hear what they're saying? Do you not understand what they're doing? Do you not know Psalm 118? Do you not hear them calling you king? Do you not see that they're saying that you're the Messiah? Jesus, stop them. Tell them to, to quiet down, to stop doing this. And then Jesus, who is completely humble, but not at all modest, makes this statement. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now, all week long, I have thought, do I do a dad joke about a rock concert? And I decided I'm not going to do that. So you wonder, is, is he just speaking metaphorically? You know, if they stop, the rocks will cry out. You know, you just say that it has to happen. Is he just using hyperbole? Maybe, probably, but maybe not. I mean, think about this. In Romans 8, it says that all of creation waits in eager anticipation with frustration, waiting to be liberated. All of creation. And in Isaiah 55, when it talks about Jesus, the, the, the Messiah, when he comes and he sets all things right, that the mountains and the hills will break forth with song and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. And so maybe when he says the very rocks will cry out, he's not being metaphorical at all. Maybe what he's saying is what is happening right now has been ordained from the beginning of creation and all of creation has been waiting for this. And if these people don't praise me, even my creation will. All the rocks will cry out. And as he comes over the crest of that hill, he sees all of Jerusalem in his heart. Now, give you another little rabbit trail. This is kind of fun. He's coming down this road that's been used for hundreds of years. Hundreds and hundreds of years. Hasn't changed. Probably started off as a sheep road, but it's become the road. It's the same road. Back up. Mark, in his gospel, chapter 11, verse 10, he has the people saying, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. David was like, you know, the guy. This is the same road that David was on. In an almost exact mirror opposite kind of encounter. At the end of David's reign as the king of the kingdom, his son was preparing to overthrow. Absalom was going to overthrow the kingdom. And so David leaves Jerusalem. 2 Samuel, let me read the 2 Samuel 15 says this. The whole countryside wept aloud as all the people passed by. The king also crossed the Kidron Valley and all the people moved on toward the desert. Let me just point this out. David, who is the king, 
is leaving Jerusalem, going down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and out into the desert. Jesus, the King of Kings, has come from the desert, goes down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, into Jerusalem. As David goes, people are crying and weeping. As Jesus comes, people are shouting and singing. The reason that David is leaving Jerusalem is that he is running fearful, trying to save his life. The reason Jesus rides in is that he is riding into voluntary suffering and death. That has to be on his mind. The parades, the palm branches, the scriptures being quoted, the fulfillment of prophecy, and yet the preoccupation of what awaits him. The preoccupation of what it's going to cost him. How even those who are chanting in this parade will, within a matter of days, be chanting, crucify him. And as he looks across the Kidron Valley to Jerusalem and the temple, and I wonder as he's going down, he just reminisces in his mind all of the years. When he was a baby boy, Mary and Joseph took him to the temple. He doesn't remember it. But Mary probably told him about it. How the old man, Simeon, said, I have seen your salvation. And that weird phrase, and a sword will pierce your heart as well. Mary had probably told him about Anna, this woman, who had been in the temple for decades waiting for this. The temple when he was a boy, when he was 12, he didn't think it was a big deal. He wasn't trying to be rebellious. He stayed in the temple three days when his parents lost him. It freaked them out. Shouldn't they know he'd be about his father's business? Maybe he just smiles at that. The temple that he would go to three times a year with his father Joseph until Joseph passed away and then Jesus would continue to go. Oh, the temple. The temple where during his 40 days of fasting and prayer and the temptation... The enemy took him to the pinnacle of the temple and said, throw yourself down. The temple that represented all of God's goodness to his people and to the world. The temple that he had gone to with his disciples for the last three years. And the temple that he had gone the last time he was at the temple. The last time, probably seven months earlier, at the festival of Sukkot in September. And Luke records what happened that time. In Luke 13, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, there's only a few times Jesus doubles up a name. Mary, Mary, you, you're so concerned about so many things. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And now he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And the irony is not lost that the name Jerusalem means city of peace. Oh, city of peace. Oh, city of peace. You who kill the prophets. And stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. I have longed to bring you in, to protect you, to shelter you, but you want nothing but harm. You wouldn't have it. This beautiful picture of a hen who would give up her life for her chicks. How he says, I've longed to do, to do that. 
Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, and now he quotes Psalm 118, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And now seven months later, he rides into Jerusalem, and they're saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Chapter 19 of Luke, as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he saw it, the temple, all of it, four words, he wept over it, he wept over it. As there's all of this praising, shouting, he carries this heaviness. You can imagine his eyes just welling up with tears. And quietly, when the eyelids can hold it no longer, just one tear streaks down his cheek. And then another. And then another. In the midst of a parade, I can imagine Peter looking over saying, Crying in parades. They're celebrating. And Jesus says this If you, Jerusalem, even you, especially you, city of peace, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. You know, halfway down the Mount of Olives, there's a Catholic church. There's several Catholic churches in the Mount of Olives, but halfway down, there's a, there's a Catholic church there built by, in 1955 by a man named Antonio Barluzzi. Uh, Barluzzi built a lot of churches in the Holy Lands, and all of the churches that he designed and built, the architecture tells a story. This one's no different. This church is called Dominus Flevit, which means the Lord wept, and the church is shaped like a teardrop. And on the on the outside, the facade, on, this, on, the, on the roof, on each corner, there are these stone, look like vases. They're, they're vials taken from Psalm 56, 5, where it says, and God saves every one of your tears in a vial, in a bottle. And as you go in this church, as you're walking down this path, and you go into this church, on the altar, there's this, this beautiful mosaic of a, of, a, of a chicken, of a hen. And it, it's... That time where Jesus looks over Jerusalem and says, I've longed to draw you in like a hen would bring her chicks under her wings, but you would not have it. And on the altar, and the altar is unique because in Catholic churches and in many other churches, the altar is always, always on the east side of the church, of the sanctuary. Barlucci had to write to the Vatican to get permission to put this altar on the west side of this little church. Because the west side goes down to the Kidron Valley and up to Jerusalem. And they gave him permission. And behind the altar is a window. It's not a stained glass window. It's a window. And the, the, the wrought iron work, it, it has the host and the chalice, the body and, and the blood of Christ. It has the crown of thorns across there, and it has a cross. And it's beautiful. Especially when you zoom in and you begin to realize it looks right over into Jerusalem. And that the cross covers over Jerusalem. And as I thought about that picture of here's Jerusalem with 
All of these Jewish people, and today many of them are more secular than religious, and it goes right on the Dome of the Rock, which is a which is a monument for, for Islam, for the Muslims. And just to the right of the Dome of the Rock, there's, you can't see it in this picture, I, I suppose, but there are a few little gray domes, which is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the most holy place for the Christians. It's, it's where it's believed Christ was crucified. And here it is, that Christ and what he does is for all people. Jewish and non-Jewish, Christians and Muslims. What Jesus has done is not for a certain group of people. It was for everybody. And as our king rides into Jerusalem, he weeps not just for Jerusalem, but for the world. Oh, man. I'm out of time, and I have about 45 minutes left to go in my sermon. Okay, let me go for five more minutes. Can we do that? Okay, five more minutes. Okay, all right. So what happens next, um, Mark says happens actually on Monday. So you're saying, okay, stop. We'll come back tomorrow. No, you won't. Okay, so some kind of imply it happened at that point. Remember, this is Passover, hundreds of thousands of people, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of commerce. I mean, this is like, you know, this is the big season. Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, some of you have heard this before. This is in the context of Palm Sunday, Passover week, right before the crucifixion. And there's a lot of stuff going on. He turns over these money changers and stuff. And there's a lot of animals being sold. But Matthew points out the table of those selling doves. Seemingly insignificant little detail. I don't think so. Because in Leviticus chapter 12, when there's all of these laws laid out, it says when you come to make a sacrifice, that you are to bring a lamb. And there's a concession made for those who are extremely poor. If you cannot afford a lamb, you can bring two doves. And in Luke chapter 2, when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, they can't afford a lamb. They bring two doves. And I wonder if Jesus thinks back on his parents and how poor they were and how Jesus has always reached out to the poor and the outcasts. And there's something about these dove changers. Are you kidding me? You're even exploiting the poorest of the poor of our community. Have we not been told to take care of the poor? And you're doing this? And he turns over the, the, the tables and those selling doves. And then he says, it is written. And he quotes two prophets, one Isaiah and one out of Jeremiah. And oh, if I only had another sermon. <laughs> My house will be called a house of prayer out of Isaiah 56. But you are making it a den of robbers out of Jeremiah chapter 7. Remember, when he uses a quote, you look at the context of those passages. In Isaiah 56, he talks about how they are called to do justice and be righteous. And how that, that even foreigners are not excluded if they're following God. And even those who are, who are deformed physically are not excluded if they're following God. And yet in the temple... They were doing unrighteous things, unjust things. And there was exclusions. If you were foreigners, you couldn't go here. If you were women, you couldn't go here. If you were unclean here, you couldn't go here. If you, if you were blemished, if you were diseased, you couldn't. There were all these barriers. And Jesus puts this out there. This is not the way God ordained it. You've made it a, a, a den of thieves, a house of robbers. In that context of that, if you read that in Jeremiah, and they're saying, oh, the holy temple, the holy temple. We're safe here in the holy temple. He says, no, you're not. It's not about a place. 
It's about your heart. And you see the heart of our king as he comes in with a heart broken for Jerusalem and the world, as he's disgusted with the man-made rules that are excluding people that need God the most. He says, I won't have it. I won't have it. And then throughout Holy Week, in Luke 19, it says this. Every day he was teaching at the temple. Every day. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the teachers among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on all of his words. What were his words? It's the words he'd been saying for three years. You're welcome. The Father loves you. If you feel like you're poor in spirit, that's the prerequisite to get into the kingdom. The doors of the kingdom are open to anybody and everybody. God is for you. Enough of the man-made rules. And they hung on those words. Okay, one more. One more. Oh, my five minutes are up. One more. Matthew 21, 14. I'll talk fast. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Say, no big deal. He does it all the time. No, 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 no. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple. The blind and the lame were not allowed in the temple. This goes back a thousand years earlier in the Jebusites had Jerusalem and, and David was going to attack it. And, and the king of the Jebusites said the blind and the lame could ward off David. And David says this in 2 Samuel. On that day, David said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft, which they did, to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they said the blind and lame will not enter the house. David said, I don't want anyone blind or lame in the temple because of what the Jebusite king said for a thousand years. The blind and the lame were not allowed in. And now I think that the deal is Jesus threw things out. If you're like, whoa, Jesus, new man in charge here. There's authority. He says, blind, lame, come on in. And no one stops him because it's a new day and there's a new king and Jesus will be the one. And there will never have to be another sacrifice after this week because he will be the final sacrifice. And we won't need another high priest because he is the great high priest. And we won't need the Holy of Holies because the, the veil will be torn and we will have access. We won't even need the temple because we become the temple of the living God. And Jesus, our King, will come again. And on that day, the mountains and the hills will break forth with song. And the trees of the field will clap their hands and the rocks will cry out. But until that day, that's our job. <laughs> 